Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Have a worship time for children. Also, we have a nursery as well. If you have little babies and you want to take advantage of that, we'd, we'd encourage you to do that as well. We are back in the Gospel of Luke, so I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Last week, I really appreciate um, the feedback that we received from the message. It was a little hard to hear last week when God says no, but I, I'm sure that um, God is taking that message and, and producing fruit in our hearts from that. So Luke chapter 11. You may not know who this is, but I'm a big fan of a theologian, a a seminary professor. His name's Michael Horton. Um, He teaches at Westminster Seminary. He hosts uh, a a weekly radio show and podcast called The White Horse Inn. He is the um, editor of Modern Reformation. Um, I've got his systematic theology. He's one of my favorite modern day living um, theologians. And he wrote a book that came out a few years ago, an excellent book called Christless Christianity. And in the opening pages of this book, he makes this very, I think it's a thought-provoking statement. So let me quote to you what Michael Horton says here. He says, quote, What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, that's where the town was, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians with smile, that would smile at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. It's kind of a thought-provoking quote, isn't it? Perhaps you thought the answer would be a little bit different if Satan were to take control over a city, if Satan were to take control over Sterling or any town here in Colorado. Now, Satan is a master of confusion, and Satan has wreaked havoc in our nation. You can look around and see Satan's handiwork from everything from abortion to pornography to violence to domestic abuse to drug addiction to the gay rights movement to transgender confusion to Marxist ideologies to critical race theory being taught in our public schools. You can see chaos in our nation. Yet, I want to remind you, that the devil also operates in other subtle, kind of calculated ways that take the focus off of Christ and his cross. Satan can actually fool people into thinking that if they're good citizens, if they keep their noses clean, if they're upright and moral and go to church and look really good to others, then they're truly saved. When in reality, you can look good on the outside and you can be a very moral person and yet have no internal change whatsoever that comes from the power of 
the Holy Spirit and the new birth. Now, why do I bring up this thought-provoking statement about the working of Satan? Maybe it wasn't what you thought if Satan were to take over a town. It's very interesting. You all know that over the past few months, we've spent a lot of time in Luke chapter 11 talking about prayer. We've looked at the Lord's Prayer in great detail. We've looked at asking and seeking and knocking and, and praying with persistence. And last week we looked at when God says no. So, so we've been inundated with prayer in these first few verses of Luke chapter 11. And it's no accident that right on the tails of prayer, Luke introduces us to spiritual warfare, the devil. And that's what happens. When you take prayer seriously, there's going to be satanic attacks. And it's illustrated for us in our text this morning. The English pastor and hymn writer, William Cooper, he wrote a hymn in 1779 called What Various Hindrances We Meet. And there's a famous line from that old hymn, and he says this, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. When you begin to pray, Satan trembles, and he's going to attack, and he's going to try to thwart God's purposes, and he's going to be active. And so what I want us to do this morning in Luke chapter 11 is I really want to explore it in two parts, kind of the way the ESV here breaks it up in verses 14 through 23, we'll look at first, and then 24 through 26. So let's explore this passage together. So this is right on the heels of Jesus' teaching about prayer. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But... If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's first of all this morning explore the false accusations. There are some false accusations that are leveled against Jesus, and we see that in verses 14 through 16. Now, Jesus is continuing to cast out demons. That's his ministry, to heal, to cast out demons. He cast out a demon here of a man that was mute. And so Satan is trying to counteract what, what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus is coming with the kingdom of light into the enemy's territory, into the domain of darkness. And so these religious leaders 
And we know they're religious leaders. We know that the Pharisees and the scribes, because Matthew and Mark's gospel tell us that they came down from Jerusalem to check, to check Jesus out. They begin to make false accusations against Jesus. And there are two accusations or two confrontations here. The first confrontation that we see here is that these religious leaders actually accuse Jesus of doing the work of Satan. He's casting out demons by Beelzebub. Now, here's the issue. These religious leaders cannot deny that Jesus is doing miracles. It's, it's unrefutable. It's irrefutable. Jesus has been performing miracle after miracle. He's fed the 5,000s. They cannot refute or dispute the miracles. So what do they do? They say, well, we can't dispute that he's doing miracles, but here's what we're going to say. He's doing these miracles by the power of Satan. Jesus, the only way Jesus can perform these things is if Satan himself is operating through Jesus. Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, now what does Beelzebul mean? Beelzebul first shows up back in the Old Testament. Back in 2 Kings chapter 1, there was a wicked king, Ahaziah. And Ahaziah, this is a very interesting story, he fell through a window and he got injured. And instead of calling for the the priest of Israel or calling upon the, the Lord of Israel, he goes and calls for a pagan god of the Philistines called Beelzebub to come and help him heal after falling through this window. And so in the Old Testament, Beelzebub was equated with a Philistine pagan god. Now, what does Beelzebub or Beelzebul really mean? It means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. In other words, Beelzebub or Beelzebul, the prince of demons, is Satan. So the first accusation here is that Jesus is performing his miracles in the power of Satan. Now, that's that's a crazy charge. Now, there's a second confrontation from a different group of people, probably a crowd of onlookers that were trying to test him. They wanted Jesus to perform a sign. Verse 15, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, another group, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. We want you to do something amazing, Jesus. Prove that you're truly who you say you are, which is kind of ridiculous because he's already fed the 5,000. He's already walked on water. He's already done all these miracles. Why does Jesus need to prove himself? They're seeking a sign from him to prove that he's the Messiah. In other words, both the Pharisees and the crowds are really hard-hearted. They're obstinate. they're, They're making false accusations against Jesus. They're doubting who he truly is. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you got two confrontations, two charges against Jesus. Number one, he's performing these miracles by Satan. And number two, Jesus proved who you truly are by performing another sign on demand. Okay, so that's the, that's the false accusations. Okay, let's next see Jesus' penetrating answers. Now, why do I use the word penetrating answers? Because Jesus penetrates their minds. He reads their minds. He knows exactly what they're thinking. And he's going to answer the charges. So look at verse 17. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, 
penetrating into their thoughts, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and his divided house falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Jesus basically says this. If what you say is true, if you think I'm doing the work of Satan, it's a pretty stupid thing for Satan to be doing because he's working against himself. It's a divided house. Why would Satan work overtime to release people from being demon-possessed? Satan wants people demon-possessed. Why would Satan work against himself? It's illogical. It doesn't make sense for Satan to be doing this, to purposely work against himself. Satan wants people in bondage, not freed. Jesus is coming and preaching the gospel and, and releasing people out of bondage. Why would Satan work to do that? It doesn't make any sense. So Jesus says, this is basically illogical. It's very illogical for you to think that Satan would want to do to work against himself. But then Jesus gives a second answer. And the second answer that Jesus gives reminds us of the ten plagues back in the book of Exodus. Do you remember the magicians in Pharaoh's court who could mimic the miracles, the plagues, with their satanic magic? Jesus says something very interesting. He says in verse 19, If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Look at verse 20. But it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's by the finger of God that I'm doing this. It's not by the power of Satan, scribes and Pharisees. What I'm doing here is by the finger of God because the kingdom of God has come. Now, why does Jesus use the terminology finger of God? Remember the ten plagues. What was the first plague? Turning the Nile River to blood. The Egyptian magicians could copy that with their satanic arts. They could mimic that. The second one was the frogs. The Egyptian magicians could mimic that one. But it came to the third plague, the gnats or the flies, and the Egyptian magicians could not go any further in mimicking God. They could not imitate God. Their, their, their sorcery came to an end. And they admit something very interesting. In Exodus 8, 19, the magician said this. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. These pagan sorcerers said, this is the finger of God. What does Jesus say here? It's not by the power of Satan. It's by the finger of God. That I'm doing these things. So what does the finger of God mean? Think about the Old Testament for a moment. How did God liberate those that were in Egyptian bondage, the Israelites, and bring them to freedom? By the finger of God. Jesus is saying, now here's a new exodus that's happening. I'm the king of the kingdom, and I'm coming, and I'm releasing those that are demon-possessed, and I'm freeing them, and I'm doing it in the same way that the Old Testament was, by the finger of God. The finger of God is at hand here. So here's the bottom line, what Jesus is saying. If anybody's going to be rescued out of slavery to sin, out of bondage to Satan, it has to be by the finger of God. 
The finger of God is a metaphor or a symbol for being released from your slavery to sin and Satan. Salvation, conversion, transformation, the finger of God. So the two accusations, you're doing this by the workers of Satan, show us a sign. Jesus says, number one, this is illogical. Why would Satan work against himself? And number two, I'm not under the power of Satan at all. This is the finger of God, the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on to illustrate something that we're going to spend some time on in verses 22 and 33. So let's thirdly this morning explore Jesus' power over the strong man. Jesus tells a story or a parable of a strong man. And so let's just kind of look at this parable, the story. He says in verse 21, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are saved. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he's trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now Jesus is telling a parable, a story here, but we know what the point is. Satan is the strong man that has a castle and has people in bondage. Jesus is the stronger man that comes and plunders the castle. But let's just look at this, because this teaches us something about Satan, some descriptions about this prince of demons, this Beelzebul. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 21. When a strong man fully armed, he's fully armed. We need to understand some things about the devil this morning, okay? Maybe you don't know these things. The devil is fully armed. Now, he's not omnipresent. He's not totally powerful, But he's armed. And Jesus calls him a murderer and a father of lies. John 8, 44, you're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He's talking to the Pharisees here, talking about the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks out of his character, for he is a liar and a father of lies of lies. Satan is armed with power to seduce and to lie. Paul tells us that Satan has designs or schemes that he tries to outwit us. 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. That word outwitted that Paul uses there means that Satan is like a, is like a used car salesman that's going to want to defraud you. He's got an insatiable desire to be greedy and to attack you. And he's got designs. He's got plans. He's got schemes that are coming against you. He wants to defraud you. In Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's, the, that's Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air, the one that's at work in the world doing evil, trying to outwit us, having schemes. Later on in Ephesians, we find out that he has spiritual authority, uh, 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil is a spiritual being that has schemes, he has plans. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we need to understand the reality of what Jesus is saying here about Satan. He's a strong man that's armed. And his ultimate aim is to destroy the work of Christ. Now, we need to be careful. He's not all-powerful. He's still a created being who's under the control of a sovereign God. But he's armed. But notice what else Jesus says. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace. A palace. Do you know where Satan's palace is? Where place where he rules? It's the hearts of unbelievers. Satan has influence over hearts and minds. They're trapped in his kingdom. Paul tells us that the devil blinds the minds of unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So Satan is armed in his palace, and his desire is to keep people in bondage to blind them from seeing who Jesus is. Paul says later on in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, and the Lord's servant, talking to Timothy, who's a pastor, the Lord's servant, a pastor, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from what? From the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The snare of the devil, captured by the devil. The Bible describes unbelievers' hearts as being captured by the devil in this palace, if you will, blinded with Satan armed. And they have a false sense of security. His goods are safe. His goods are safe. Satan traps people in this palace, if you will, giving them a false sense of security, thinking everything's okay. Revelation 12.9 says this about the devil. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. He's a deceiver. He's going to deceive people. He's going to blind people. He's going to get, in the, get unbelievers to believe the lie that everything's fine. There is no hell. Everything's safe. Everything's secure. You don't need to worry about repentance. You don't need to worry about sin. You don't need to worry about coming judgment. Just embrace your sin. Embrace this world. They're in bondage. That's what the strong man is doing to the hearts of unbelievers. But yet notice, a stronger one. Jesus comes in verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, 
he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Jesus is the stronger man that comes and conquers Satan and plunders the palace and brings the captives free. Jesus ultimately conquered Satan on the cross. Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's delivered us from Satan. He's delivered us from being blinded in our sin. Colossians 2, 14 through 15, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with this legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what did Jesus do when he was nailed to the cross? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he triumphed over the devil. He conquered the devil. He disarmed the devil. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy. This is Jesus. He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil and to bring the captives free out of slavery. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. So what has Jesus done? Jesus has come in to the house, to the palace of the devil, and has released the prisoners and taken them to his salvation. Now, in verse 23, Jesus says, you're either with me, or you're against me. In other words, there's no neutrality with Jesus. You can't kind of be like Switzerland and be neutral. You're either with Jesus or you're against Jesus. Now, what does it mean to be with Jesus? To be with Jesus means you've been rescued. You've been freed. You've been saved. You, you've believed in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. You've believed in his death, burial, and resurrection. You're with Jesus. Being against Jesus means just the opposite. You haven't trusted in Christ. You haven't repented of your sins. You haven't come to faith in him. You're still trapped by the devil, and you are against him. What do you need to be released? You need the finger of God. You need the power of God. You need supernatural grace. You need the stronger man to come and transfer you out of the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of his son. You need the stronger man to take the blinders off your eyes and give you the glory of Christ before you. You need the stronger one to come and to do a work to disarm the devil, to destroy the works of the devil. You need the stronger one, Jesus, to do a supernatural work that only he can do as the one who's the king of the kingdom bringing the finger of God. That's what you need to be with Jesus as opposed to being against Jesus. Which leads to the second section of this passage this morning. Which is a little bit interesting. Let's keep reading. Verse 24 through 26. It's the same theme, but Jesus makes it a little bit more 
pertinent to this issue of being religious or moral. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now, it's vitally important that we understand what Jesus is teaching here. He's talking about Beelzebub. He's talking about the prince of demons. He's talking about demon possession. But here he makes a very important point. And I can't tell you how often I have seen this in the result of my ministry over the years. Here's a summary of what Jesus is saying, okay? You are not saved by a partial moral improvement, but by a total spiritual transformation. Let me say it a different way. Moral improvement or cleaning up your life without being born again will lead you straight to hell. Now, how do I get this? Where do you see this in the passage, Pastor Sean? I had to do a lot of work this week in the text to determine what Jesus is actually saying here. Because there's a lot of things that are confusing. Now, in verse 24, an unclean spirit leaves a person. Now, Jesus doesn't say this, is, this spirit's been cast out. We just know it's a demon. It's an unclean spirit. It's gone out of a person. It pla- passes through waterless places. Do not ask me what that means. I do not know. I do not know where these waterless places are. There are some things in the spiritual world we just don't know enough about. And to pretend that we know about them shows that maybe you know a little bit too much that you, than, than you think you know. I don't know what it means that these demons go to waterless places. I just know that the demon goes to a waterless places and it gets restless because it wants to go back. It wants to go back and inhabit a person. And so what does the demon do? The demon says, I'm going to go back to the original person I left. I'm going to go back to the original house, the original abode. I'm going to go back. But what has happened to the original house, the original person? Pay very close attention to verse 25. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. What does that mean that the house is swept and put in order? The house is the person, obviously. What it means this. The person's cleaned up their act. The person got religious. The person maybe tried hard to be religious, maybe went to church. They made some moral improvements. They may have kind of had some outward moralism. They look good to everybody. They're they're, they're cleaned up. But why can the demon go back into a cleaned up house? Here's the point. The Holy Spirit's not there. How can the Holy Spirit, or how can a demon go back into a person if the Holy Spirit's there? See, this person just cleaned up their act with some moral improvement, but they were never truly, totally saved. They were never truly, totally born again. They did not have the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit's not there, it's just moral improvement, kind of cleaned up its act. Here's the scary thing. The demon goes and gets seven of his buddies and comes back and inhabits that person, who at first had one demon, now has eight, which is worse than they were the first time when they were just possessed by one demon. The point is the demon cannot bring back his buddies if the Holy Spirit is living in the house. The Holy Spirit's not living in the house. 
Here's the point. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit's living in your house. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in you. Jesus made this promise. In John 14, 16 through 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit will be in you forever if you're a Christian. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. So, not only must this demon be gone from the original man, the original person here, but the Holy Spirit has to come in and do this work of regeneration. The Holy Spirit has to do a work of conversion. The Holy Spirit has to do a work of transformation. It's not just a moral improvement where you tidy up your life and you try really hard to do good things and be moral on the outside. That's not going to help you at all spiritually. Now, to others, it may look like you've, you've improved your life, but the demon will come back. Now, I'm not saying that this is, this is a, a case where every single person is going to be demon-possessed. This is a, a, a lesson that Jesus is teaching. But here's the point. You need more than just moral improvement. You need to be born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You need to be made a new creation. The old has to pass away. Behold, the new has come. The Holy Spirit has to take up residence in your heart. The Holy Spirit has to do this transformation. The Holy Spirit has to make you transformed and born again and saved. Now this is where the devices and the cunning and the tricks of the devil are so sinister. Is this person a flagrant, rebellious, out-of-control sinner, a prostitute, a child porn trafficker, um, uh, the worst thing you can think of? No. This person, from all outward appearances, looks good. Their house has been swept and put in order. They're clean. They're tidy. They're moral. They're upright. They pay their taxes. They keep their nose clean. They're doing everything on the outside that a community member would say, that's a good, upstanding member of the community. But the problem is, there's no inward supernatural change by sovereign grace. Phil Riken said this. He made this great insight. He said, quote, Moral reformation without spiritual regeneration can even lead to demonic domination. What do you and I truly need? Do we need to clean up our acts, make a New Year's resolution, try to be better, moral improvement, so that people will respect us? Now, what do we need? We need to be touched by the finger of God. We need God to reach down and to change us from the inside out. And how does this happen? The stronger man, Jesus, comes and plunders 
the work of Satan. The stronger man's conquered. Jesus has conquered by the finger of God. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're more than conquerors. So if you have been saved this morning, the Holy Spirit has given you new life. You've been touched by the finger of God. You've been born again. You've been internally transformed by grace. You've been converted supernaturally. And it's not just a moral improvement where you've kind of cleaned up your act and looked good to others, made a New Year's resolution here or there. If you've been touched by the finger of God and the stronger man has come and delivered you from the bondage of sin, you have the promise that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You are secure. So here's a question. Have you been touched by the finger of God? Have you been released from slavery to Satan? Have you been saved by amazing grace through Jesus? If you have, let's continually give thanks and praise for this wonderful salvation. Because Jesus has plundered Satan. Jesus has conquered the strong man. And Jesus has released us and brought us into the kingdom of life. If you have not been touched by the finger of God, if you've not been saved by grace, if you've not had this internal cleansing, this transformation, this spiritual change that only comes by the Holy Spirit, then what better day than today than to ask God to do it? Say, God, do this in me. God, change me. God, I want to be a Christian. God, do this. I want to be touched by the finger of God. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to trust in Christ. I don't want to just be a good person and be morally out, upright. I want this change to happen. So as we approach the Lord's table this morning, we can approach it with joy because Jesus has conquered the enemy through the wonderful cross. So let's remember our Savior's victory over Satan and sin as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. Let me ask you to bow your heads as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together this morning. And would you just spend a few moments in preparation, a few moments in silent prayer, asking the Lord to work on your heart, asking the Lord to take these truths and embed them into your heart and into your soul. Jesus, we want to be those that are touched by the finger of God. We want to have that 
deep transformation of grace that only comes by you and your Holy Spirit. Lord, there may be many who try hard to be good, to make some moral improvements here and there, to try harder maybe to be spiritual. And they do all of these things, but Lord, they've never been saved by grace alone. They've never had the Holy Spirit come and live inside of them. They've never been born again. They're not a new creation in Christ. My prayer this morning is if there's anybody in this room that that has not happened to them yet, that today would be the day they're touched by the finger of God. Today's the day they're saved by grace. Lord, would you do a work that only you can do? And as those that have been released from bondage, as those that have been released from slavery to sin and Satan, let us with joy, like the demon-possessed man Legion that we saw a few months ago, he was so joyful. He was one of the, the plunders of war that, that Jesus plundered from Satan's strong arm, our strong house. So, so Lord, help us to be joyful that you've rescued us, that you've saved us, that we've been touched by the finger of God. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, help us to come with joy, help us to come with celebration, because Jesus, you are the conqueror, you are the victor, you are the stronger man, you are the ultimate triumph and King of kings and Lord of lords. We love you, Jesus. Help our hearts be prepared to worship you this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.